Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 513 with Lee Hartley Carter. Apologies, I've got a little bit of a cold here, but you won't hear much of that because when I recorded the interview with Lee, it was before the cold happened. So anyway, Lee's got some great stuff about how to persuade in a world where facts don't even seem to matter sometimes. So you'll learn, one, why we need more than just facts, two, the foundations of compelling persuasion, and three, how to craft your master narrative. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep513. Now here's Lee's story. Lee Hartley Carter is president of Maslansky Plus Partners, a language strategy firm based on the single idea that it's not what you say, it's what they hear. As a television news personality and researcher, she doesn't rely on traditional polling for her unique insights into U.S. politics. Rather, she analyzes voters' emotional responses to help understand and empathize with them on a more visceral level. The reaction matters, but the why behind it matters all the more. It was these insights that allowed her to accurately predict the results of the 2016 presidential election and primaries. So Lee's about to share some great tidbits for better persuasion. Another handy tool to boost that persuasiveness is Prezi. If you're bored with presenting and reading bland slide decks, Prezi can come to the rescue. Prezi is a software program that helps you make interactive, dynamic, and impactful presentations that engage audiences and get results. Prezi's give you a moving, zoomable canvas that helps you present with the flow of a conversation. You can freely move throughout the presentation, zooming in for finer details within context and zooming out to show the big picture. One university research study found that Prezi is 25% more effective, 22% more persuasive, and 16% more engaging than PowerPoint. You can present from any internet-enabled device or even use their desktop version if you just have no Wi-Fi or LTE signal anywhere to be had. You can convert existing PowerPoint presentations with their converter and start very quickly with their snazzy, easy-to-use templates. So bias up your presentations by trying Prezi for free for two weeks at Prezi.com awesome. That's spelled Prezi, P-R-E-Z-I dot awesome. Now, here's Lee. Lee, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. I'm so happy to be here and excited about this conversation. Oh, me too. And, you know, one thing that we share is that we both auditioned for the real world. But I understand you were actually a finalist. What's the story here? Okay, so I was a finalist and it was a long, long time ago. I was obviously an infant when I auditioned. (laughs) But I was in London and I was studying there while I was in college And I was walking down the street and somebody asked me if I wanted an interview for the show. I had never seen it before. And I got all the way to the, to the finalist, uh, selection of it and was super excited to be at MTV headquarters at the time. And, uh, I got the paperwork and they said, you know, you're going to be one of the final 28 finalists. They're doing a special and you have to sign this contract. And what I realized was that my parents and my grandparents would have to know that I drank if I were to be on this television show. So I I didn't go for it because I was afraid that they were going to find that out, which is so funny of all the things because the world's so different now. I am so thankful that I made that decision. Tell me more. So so what would have been the negative ramifications of you having footage of yourself on the real world uh, coming fast forwarding into the, the current year? I just don't think at, you know, age, whatever I was, 18, that I would have, you know, pro- 
portrayed myself in a way that I would want to be uh, out there for all time because that becomes part of your story, right? And and I'm not sure that who I was at 18 is something I want the whole world to see, even though it is definitely part of my story that I like to talk about today. But you know, those those it's tough to be out there all the time for everybody to see. Well, yeah, that's a great perspective. I remember my audition was very short. Uh, we waited in line for a long, long time outside this this club in Chicago, and then each had an opportunity to just like introduce ourselves in a in a group for mm-hmm. like twenty seconds. Yeah, and then that was it. <laughs> and then they tried to like reassure us and say something like, hey, you know, we cast so and so and so and so, you know, real quickly, you know, just because we know that they have it. It's like, oh, okay, well, all right, well, you have some magical powers. I don't, <laughs> I don't know who has it. But I, I guess now you, you bring up some great points. Perhaps I could be grateful that uh, that never came to pass in my life. <laughs> The, the unanswered prayers conversation sometimes they're the best, <laughs> the biggest gifts, right? So, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I'm excited to talk about your wisdom. You talk about persuasion, how to convince others when facts don't seem to matter. And boy, uh, what a juicy topic. So, could you tell us what's sort of the state of play right now with regard to, to humans and facts and the extent to which they do or don't matter these days? So we're in a place, and everybody says to me all the time, my clients or people in conversation, knowing they wrote this book, it's so frustrating. Facts don't seem to matter. And my argument is actually that they never really did. Oh. And I hate to say that because it sounds extremely cynical, and I'm not a cynical person. But the truth of the matter is, if you're trying to convince somebody who has a different opinion than you do, who holds different beliefs than you do, facts alone aren't going to be enough to change their mind. And the reason for that is... Human beings have all kinds of biases that are inside of us. And there's behavioral science and all kinds of theories on why this is true. But basically, we recognize patterns, and that's how we survive in nature. And we pick up the things that reinforce that, you know, what we believe or what we need, and we reject things that don't serve us well. And that's just the way we work. And so, when you are predisposed to believe something, you're going to pick up all of the facts and all of the information that reinforces your existing opinion, and you're going to reject those things that don't, and you're going to move on with your day. Mm-hmm. The difference between now and any time before that is how we consume information and how much information we get. So it used to be that we had to wade through lots of information on both sides. And you would you know, pick out the information, but there were different authorities that you were trusted. There were different kinds of things and ways that you would get information. You would even have to go to the library or go to the encyclopedia. You know, you'd have to read the news. You'd have to do all kinds of things that we didn't, we don't have to do now. And you're exposed to lots of different opinions and ideas. That doesn't necessarily have to happen now because every Everybody can sort of sign up for who they believe, who they trust, and just get fed that same information over and over and over again without even really having to wade in and find out, you know, how do people feel that disagree with them. And so because we're so inundated with information, because, you know, on average, we're getting 5,000 marketing messages at us a day, and because we're insular in who we believe and we trust and we're getting more and more tribal, it becomes harder and harder to break through with facts alone. We have to find a way that disrupts patterns so that makes people stop and say, huh, I never thought about that that way before. And that's not just going to happen because of facts alone. Intriguing and, and well said. And, and I like that notion of, of patterns being disrupted. And hmm, I've never thought of it that way before, because that's some of my favorite information you know, mm-hmm. in terms of it just gets you going. Like, I guess I think about sometimes it's just like sort of groups that, um, that exist. Like, uh, let, let's see what's 
uh, that's a good one. Like, let's say, well, how about we'll pick abortion? There's a juicy one, huh? Mm. Like, just like the existence of groups like secular pro-life or Democrats for life or something, just this kind of gets people scratching their head a little bit like, wait a minute, my, my perception of that belief system and those who hold it is is does not match just the name of your group. And, and then that just sort of like gets people intrigued to to dig in more or, or just whenever you hear a, a potential I don't know, a contradiction. It's, I guess it's a contradiction to your set of perceptions of, of things. Yeah, well, I just find it very intriguing to learn, well, what's, what's this group all about? Do tell. Totally. And that's really the goal, right? That is, you know, it's not necessarily be provocative, but it's just enough to give, uh, you know, people a reason to pause and say, wow, I want to think about that differently. And that sometimes can be enough to change their mind, but certainly can be enough to interrupt patterns and get things moving in the right direction. All right. So then let's, let's kind of dig into it then. If, if we want to be doing some persuasion and do some pattern interrupting, how do we pull it off? So there's a few things, you know, I, in, in the book, I I talk about this nine step process that you need to go through, but there's a few steps that I think are most important to really focus on and highlight. And the first is being really clear on what it is that you want to accomplish. And I don't think we spend enough time about this. Sometimes we're just saying, you know, I want to get the job or sometimes it's just, I want to get this done. Sometimes it's, you know, I want more people to vote this way, but I think we really need to slow down and say, what is it that you're trying to accomplish and what do I need to have happen in order that? And what do I want people to do differently as a result of what I'm asking them? I think you just really need to slow down on this vision and be really specific. I don't think we give enough weight to that step in the process. And and so could you maybe give us a, an example in terms of, hey, you might think that you have a clear idea at this level, but no, no, a, a clear idea sounds more like this, more detailed articulation. Yeah. One of my favorite stories that I, I use to illustrate this point comes from right after college, I went through a, a a pretty bad breakup and I was really disappointed in how things had turned out. And I was out with one of my friends. He's one of my best friends and he's still to this day. And he said to me, so Lee, you know, in a few years, none of this is going to matter. I know right now you're devastated, but let's think about what is your, what is your dream? What do you want your life to look like in 10 years? And I said, I don't know. I, I guess I, I'd like to have a job that I like and maybe, maybe be married and, and have a couple kids, I, I, I guess. And he said, no, 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 Lee, that is not a dream. That's just lame. Let me tell you about a dream. He said, in 10 years time, I want to be, it's going to be sunset and I'm going to be taking my boat and I'm going to be coming back into shore, back to the marina. I'm going to have had a great day fishing with my dad and my brother. We're going to have caught a load of fish and I'm going to be playing Bob Seger's Hollywood Nights. The wind is going to be going through my hair and I'm going to be coming back to the marina where my wife and daughter are waiting for me. And I'm going to know in that moment that I've just made it, that I've got my marriage, I've got my kids, I've got my job, I've got my family, I've got everything just perfect. That's my dream. He goes, Lee, that is a dream. All right. And I was like, you know what? You're so right. And so when I tell people when they're entering into persuasion, whether you're trying to land your dream job, whether you're trying to launch a new product, whether you're trying to change someone's political ideology, whether you're trying to rebuild your reputation, I want you to be that specific. I want you to be that 
visual so that you know what exactly does it look like? What does success look like? So that you can really spend time, visualize it, not give short stretch and say, you know what, I, I'm, here's the three bullets of what I'm trying to accomplish. No, I want you to feel it. That's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so we get really clear on that then. And, and what's next? So what's next about that is getting real about what would keep you from doing that. So a lot of times when we're creating our master vision or a big, or big, you know, what it is that we're looking for, we'll talk ourselves out of it before we even get started. I don't want anyone to do that, but what I do want them to do in the next step is start thinking about that. So what are the things that are going to keep you from that? So, and this is about being really, really honest. And so I will say sometimes if you're a business owner and you're trying to get something, come and say, I don't have experience in that. This is a time that you would try and say, okay, so I don't have the right experience. So I might need to reach out and get that kind of help, or I might even just need to lean into that. Legal might not allow me to say this or might not allow me to, you know, for whatever reason, the next step is about getting real about what might keep you from getting to your obstacles. Figure out how you can flip those on your heads. Because one thing that I find often in persuasion is that we don't address the problems that we have often enough in our, in our messaging and in our language. So, you know, if you're a big company, you might be seen as greedy. If you're a small company, you might seem as, as too small. If you're inexperienced, you know, if you don't address all these things, they can really come back and bite you. But in effective persuasion, you address them. So sometimes, for example, if you think about President Trump, whether you like him or not, when he was running in 2015 and 2016, he knew that he wanted to be president, had a big, clear picture But his weakness was that he didn't have the experience, that he was wealthy, and maybe many people thought he was out of touch, and there was a number of other weaknesses. But he flipped them on their heads. So he wasn't, he was, he used the fact that he had no experience to his advantage. He said, look, I'm an outsider. I'm going to go in and drain the swamp. I'm a businessman. I'm going to make deals like you've never seen deals be made before. So he took those things that would have been weaknesses and turned them into strengths. And so I, I encourage people when you're trying to go out with your vision, figure out what it is that you want. If you're going in and you're interviewing for a job, and you don't have experience in a particular category. Say, you know what? That's, that's to your advantage. I know they don't have experience, but I learn fast and my outside perspective, I can bring that inside your organization. So those kinds of things I think are really, really helpful and important to the process. Okay. And, and what's next? The third step is all about what I call active empathy. And this is if people take nothing else away from this conversation, this is what I hope people really take away. And that is that in order to have successful persuasion, it isn't enough to know what you want to say and what you want to accomplish. It's really about understanding where that other person comes from, deeply understanding and caring about that. Now, one thing I get all the time from people is saying, I can't have empathy for someone who holds such a radically different position than I do. And I want to be very clear. Empathy does not equal endorsement by any stretch. What it simply means is you have a deep understanding of the other. And I, I tell people that they need to understand three different parts of the other person they're trying to talk to. The first is their feelings. Why do they feel the way they feel? The second is their values. Why do they believe what they believe? And the third is their behaviors. Why do they do what they do? Once you understand those three things, then and only then can you start to create a persuasion strategy that's going to work. Otherwise, you might end up just talking in the dark. So let me just give you an example of what I mean by this. You know, you brought up abortion, so I'll bring up gun control. This is another very, very important issue to most Americans and one that's highly contentious. So if you are a Second Amendment supporter, 
the value that is most important to you is one that we call liberty versus oppression. And so the thing that you would hold most dear is freedom above all else. And you would say the worst thing that could happen is government taking away my freedoms, right? So that's the argument and that's what you're embedded in. It's all about that. If you're a pro-gun control and you say that your primary value is about harm versus care, the most important thing is that people are safe. Now, if you're not understanding each other's value there, you're going to talk over each other's heads. So the, the person is going to say, how could you how could you possibly want to put children at risk? And, and, and you're such a terrible person that you're putting yourself first. And they're saying, government is never going to make me safer. I'm the one that needs to make myself safer. Until you start talking to each other, listening to each other and understanding where the other person's coming from, you're not going to be able to have compromise. You're not going to be able to persuade and you're not going to be able to reach each other. Instead, what you're going to end up doing is putting each other in defensive postures and nobody's going to get anywhere. And so I think it's really important that we slow down on this step. And this applies not just to the super emotionally charged issues, but it applies to almost everything that you do. And, and you listed some some of those values out there, you know, harm versus care and freedom. So do you have sort of like a, a checklist rundown or menu of values that you think through? Yeah. So in the book, I, I lay it out. This is all based on um, Jonathan Haidt wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. He oh, has yeah. some things that he talks about, the moral foundations theory. These are all the moral foundations that make us sort of program us to do anything. They play out in everything we do. And even when you're thinking about how you how a company ta- handles crisis, for example, these narratives and these values play into it. Do they put people versus profits? All of those kinds of things. But yeah, there is a there is a checklist in the book. And I think that The interesting thing is in politics, and I know this isn't just meant to be about politics, is that Democrats and liberals, mostly their primary value that they mostly talk about is harm versus care. That's why so much on health care, on welfare, on a lot of those things that are traditionally left-leaning issues is all around harm versus care. On the right, in the Republicans, the primary value that most often they're talking about is liberty versus oppression, which is all about freedom and giving people opportunity. So if you think about the language that's used on both sides, you'll find that. And once you understand that, you're going to be more likely to have conversations across the aisle. But again, these issues just aren't political. This plays out in a number of different ways. Okay, thank you. Well, so we've got some steps here. So Mm -hmm. we got really clear on what you're trying to accomplish. We figured out the the roadblock, what would keep that from occurring. We've got active empathy and a deep understanding of their view. And and what's next? So then after we have all of that, you've got a really good understanding what you're trying to accomplish, what's going to keep you from getting there, and what's most important to the person that you're going to talk to. Now the answer, what the, the challenge is, how do you come up with your master narrative? What is the one thing that you want to be known for? And it's really important here that you find something that's not just about what you're trying to say, but what's important to your target audience. And oftentimes what I see people do is they don't have a master narrative. They don't have the one thing that they're trying to be known for. They try to list proof points or facts or lots of different things. You want to have one umbrella idea that's going to come back over and over again. Because I say most decisions that are going to be made about you, your company, your product, your politics, your politician is going to happen when you're not in the room. People Mm -hmm. are going to be having conversations elsewhere or people are going to be thinking about it. So you want to have that one thing that sticks in their mind that you want to be known for and that they're just going to remember. And that's what the next step is about getting really clear on what your one thing is going to be. And in politics, you know, it becomes very clear. You'll always remember the winning candidate's master narrative. So with Trump, it was make America great again. Elizabeth Warren right now is a very interesting one where she's talking about 
not just I've got a plan for that, but she's very much doing this whole thing about it's a system that broken that doesn't work for all of us. It works for the few and she wants to change that. So that's what she's all about. You want to know what is the one thing that you're all about? Nike is about bringing out the inner athlete in all of us. You know the master narrative when it works and it has to be that sort of one organizing idea. It's not necessarily the language around it, but what is that one idea that you want people to be left with when they're thinking about you, when they're thinking about your company or your brand? All right. Understood. And then next. And then next, you're going to have three things that that are going to support that idea. That's when you get to what I call pillars of the narrative, but um, others might just say, here's three things that you need to know. And it should never be more than three things. It's the, they're the right person for the job because they're scrappy. And why, how are they scrappy in three different ways? They work harder, you know, they work tirelessly and they work one other way. Like you're going to get the three things that are going to come after that. So we have is one master narrative. That's the umbrella idea. Three things that support that. Now, none of this at this point is wordsmith. So that it has to be a big idea um, or has to be po- perfectly polished. Rather, it's these are the concepts that you want to communicate. So that is the next step in the process. So if I were to give an example um, of a pharmaceutical company. So uh, pharmaceutical companies right now are are struggling uh, because a lot of people are angry about pharmaceutical pricing. One of the things that they have found out is that a lot of people don't realize that pharmaceutical companies are the ones that are embedding a lot of cures. Because most people think, and this is really fascinating, most people think that cures come from charities or comes from academic institutions. And that's in large part because if you ever have anybody in your life that is fighting cancer or has another terminal illness or some kind of a thing, You'll often, the first thing you'll do is sign up for a charity, a a walk, a fundraiser, something, because you're thinking the charity is going to help find the cure. You're not thinking about the pharmaceutical companies. And so pharmaceutical companies have had come to realize that we better talk about some of the things that we're doing about where innovations come from. So the master narrative for uh, for a pharmaceutical company might be that they're inventing cures uh, that are going to help your life. Uh, both in the big ways and cures and the short times have a better, better quality of life. And then underneath that, what are three things that you need to know about it? That they're working to give people access, that they're working on addressing some of the biggest customer needs, and that they're innovating on the things that don't have cures yet. That might be the three things that they want you to know. And that's before you wordsmith anything. That's really just about getting it on paper on how do you do that. Okay, gotcha. And then once you've done that, then it's all about wordsmithing and making it polished and getting to the idea. And there's two tools that I, I tell people that they should they should use in order to bring these kinds of things to life. The first is visuals and symbols. So I often say it's not enough just to say something. You want people to be able to visualize it. When I talked about the dream in the beginning, it's so it's so helpful to have that visual. But if you think about some of the most successful you know, some of the most successful uh, campaigns or if you think about some of the most successful turns of phrases, it becomes visual language or you have a symbol. So if you think about Howard Schultz, for example, when he came back to Starbucks a number of years ago, Starbucks had lost his way. They didn't have a consistent experience at Starbucks anymore. And a lot of people were complaining about the quality of the coffee. Now, he could have come back and said, I'm back as CEO. I took a few years off, but now I'm back and we're going to have a renewed commitment to, to coffee. And fine. But what did he do instead? He came back and said, you know what? I know we lost our way. I'm back and I'm shutting the doors of every one of my stores for an afternoon so that every barista that works in Starbucks is going to be trained on the perfect cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. Now, that symbolic gesture, that visual became more powerful than anything else. That was a 
you know, symbolic gesture, a moment that really changed people's minds. It caused that pause that we were talking about earlier. So what I encourage people to do is once you have your master narrative and your three supporting points, what are visual representations of that? How can you bring that to life? You know, if you're interviewing for a job, leave a visual or tell a story that's going to give you that visual representation. So you're going to break through the clutter, whether no matter how that might, might come across. And I think it's really important that people do that. The other tool that I say is very important for folks to do that is there's the visuals and the symbols, and then there's just storytelling. It's one thing to say that you're super scrappy. It's another thing to tell a story about a time that you were super scrappy. It's one thing to say that your product meets a need. It's another thing to tell an anecdote about how it met a need in a very specific space. So for example, we work with an insurance company and the insurance company wanted to show that they go above and beyond for their customers. And their whole master narrative was we're looking for more ways to say yes which was a very sort of provocative and unique place in, in, in insurance because most people think about insurance companies saying no to claims, not trying to say yes to their customers. But again, it can be hard to believe for people. So the story that they told, or one of the stories that they told is, we look for ways to say yes, and we look for ways to do more so that our customers are in a better place. So for example, we had a client who was facing wildfires in California. They had to leave their home. So we sent a crew to their home and we had their home covered with a flame retardant foam. And when the wildfires went through their community, they were the only home that was left intact because it was covered with this. And that's something that we did because we wanted to do more for them to protect their home. Not only just so that, you know, when they came back, they, they didn't have to worry about the, the claims, but they came back, their home was in place. And that's us going above and beyond and showing our customers the kind of service they can expect from us. Yeah. And it was a true story. It was a real story. And that does something so much more than just saying, we look for ways to do more for our clients. That's good. Well, and, and this has reminded me of just any number of sort of eye-popping demonstrations. I think about the Fiber Fix-It commercial right now where they they made a roll cage for a vehicle and instead of like welding the joints, they just used this, the Fiber Fix-It tape. And so then they showed a, a car going off of a, a cliff <laughs> with, with this, this roll cage, which <laughs> should like, you know, totally snap apart because it's tape. <laughs> But, whoa, hey, what do you yeah. know? That thing is intact. And that it really makes the point you know, much more so than saying, hey, it's really strong, really, really strong. Here's a number on how strong it is uh, with its tensile or whatever strength rating. Exactly. It leaves an impression. Well, so now I, I, I'd love it if you could kind of walk us through maybe uh, one or two or three demonstrations top to bottom from, all right, I'm getting really clear on a particular goal. And then I walk through each of these steps and I've uh, executed a, a persuasive communication. Sure. So I'll give you a, a couple of different examples that are in, in different categories. I have followed for professionally, I've, I've been following election cycles since 2008. I did it for hobby before that, but professionally, that's one of the things I've been doing. So you will always know who's winning because they follow these steps and it becomes very clear. So whether you're talking about Barack Obama in 2008, or if you're talking about President Trump in 2016, and likely you can follow who's going to win this time for the same reasons. Okay, tell us who's going to win, Lee. Let's have some fun. <laughs> I can't tell you who's going to win in the head to head. But if I were to say right now who's going to win the Democratic nomination, it's going to be Elizabeth Warren. And it's because she's doing a finer job of this persuasion beyond facts alone. Yes, she is. She is. So I will walk you through from beginning to end. So the first thing is their big vision. You will always know why that person is running for president. You'll always be able to answer 
this is part of their bigger story and what part of their bigger vision. You will also always know that they have certain weaknesses that you're willing to accept. So with President Obama, remember he was a community organizer and he overcame that, right? And was able to do that. With President Trump, there were a number of obstacles before him and we talked about those. The next thing that you'll see is I always have a master narrative. President Obama had hope and change and President Trump had make America great again. And you'll see that play its way out. Then you'll always know they don't have a laundry list of policies that they're going to accomplish. They have a couple and you'll remember what they are. Barack Obama, you can still remember that he had Obamacare and he had a couple of others that he ran on. And President Trump ran on a few different policies. He ran on China trade. He ran on jobs in the economy. He ran on the wall. It was just a few. It wasn't many. And that was something else that you'll see over and over again. The next step that you'll see play out is that they will use visuals. And, you know, you can remember that Barack Obama always spoke, chose where he spoke very, very carefully. It was always symbolic and where it was, where he gave his speech in Illinois was very carefully chosen where he, uh, where he launched his camp. So he was, he understood the power of visuals as well. President Trump, he didn't just say he was getting tough on immigration. He said he was going to build a wall. That's, again, the power of visuals. And then anecdotes and storytelling, they both do it, right? So you'll see that throughout. And that's something that anybody, if you're if you're ever watching an election um, and trying to figure out who's going to win, try and say, figure out if you can answer all those steps, you're probably going to see who's winning. And Elizabeth Warren is the one that's doing that right now. The rest of the candidates are not. Okay. So there's the political view. Uh, let's, let's catch another lens. Okay. So Another lens that I will give you is for an auto company that I that I worked with a number of years ago. They were coming after some some safety concerns and people were concerned about their their cars. They had always stood for safe cars and people wanted to make sure that they were safe. And they thought that their cars could speak for themselves, but they couldn't. So their whole thing was trying to figure out how to communicate differently. They are so focused on cars that were extremely safe, quality, reliable, dependable, that you knew everything in them worked. And so we talked about their master narrative being built for how you live. So that was just this idea of it's like everything you do, it's just going to work for you. And that was going to play out in three different ways. It was going to work for today, tomorrow, and together. So everything that they did was about using it today. And you could think about it, their quality, you know, other cars today, it was going to be usable, everything you could do. Stuff in the future, whether it was electronic vehicles, whether it was flying cars, whether it was all different kinds of things, it was going to be highly usable. It was going to be practical innovation, cars you could use. And together, it was going to be stuff in the community that they could all do together, which was all about they didn't just uh, give back to communities. What they did is they said, we're going to use our manufacturing know-how, all of the things that we know how to do so well to make improvements in quality and reliability, whether it's in the local emergency room, whether it's in the local soup kitchen, whether it's disaster recovery and they need to get people back in their homes faster. We're going to use all of the things that we know about manufacturing cars in order to make things more efficient in other ways. So they had the three things and they would just hit them over and over and over again. So that's an, that's another one. Okay. Well, yeah, let's do a third. So we were working with a financial services company who was selling a very complicated product. This product was a, a variable annuity and it was something that a lot of people did not understand. And so they needed to, a lot of people were talking about this variable annuities as guaranteed income for life. And that's not something that was necessarily resonant with a lot of people out there. And the reason for that, I think is really interesting because this goes back to the whole idea of active empathy, which is why, you know, what a lot of people would say, well, I'm not looking for income in retirement. I'm going to stop getting income. 
And what we learn by talking to people is that they feel like in order to retire, in order to stop working, it's not about generating more income. It's about having a big enough pool of assets that they can live off of. So they weren't thinking about income and retirement. So it just wasn't as resonant. What they needed to know is that they had protected growth. They wanted that pool of money to continue to grow while they were in retirement. And they wanted to know that it was protected so that they didn't have any of the downside that they might have otherwise. So we shift the master narrative instead of being about guaranteed income for life to being about protected growth. Totally shifted the conversation and how they talked about it. The other thing that the companies were doing when they were talking about it, so you had the master narrative, was that they were often in what I would call an arms race. And I think a lot of folks do this is they try to sell. Our death benefit is better than your death benefit. Our thing is better than yours. And it's just about listing a lot of features. So instead of telling them to to just focus on a lot of features, we talked about starting to think about a few different things. So let's talk about three different categories here underneath it, or sometimes it's just two. In this case, it was just two, protection and growth. So let's talk about how your assets are protected. And here's the different ways underneath it, rather than talking about all these different, you know, guaranteed minimum death benefits and income benefits and all these things that were confusing people. There's three ways that your your money is protected. And there's a number of different ways that it's still going to grow because you're still going to have access to the market through similar kinds of mutual funds than you would have on the outside. And so instead of having a lot of features underneath it, there was protection and there was growth and there were the points to make underneath it. Okay. Thank you. Well, so throughout these, I guess what I'm really wondering here when, with the active empathy bit, how do you go about, you know, in practical, tactical terms, getting after knowing what are their feelings? What are their values? What are their behaviors? Are, are there some, you know, favorite questions you'd like to use in, in surveys or interviews or, or how do you collect that insight? I think the most important thing, right, is that you don't just try to assume that you know what the other person's thinking or feeling, that you do ask the questions. So whether you're hiring a research firm or you're doing your own Google survey or whether you're just engaging in conversations, it's really important that you ask people who are in your target audience, not people who aren't. Like you really want to get clear on who they are. And so I think that what you need to ask before you start is, before you start developing your message, is you need to ask some questions like, what do you think about the issue, the product, or the company that we're talking about? And when you're asking the questions yourself, you need to make sure that you take all judgment out of it. And in the book, I talk a little bit with a with a coach who is somebody who coaches professional athletes on how do you help people stay curious and not get overly emotional because you that's the key here is you don't want to start reaching judgments you really want to stay curious and in your brain you cannot be both curious and emotional at the same time it's impossible because of where that the emotion is processed the same place so the job is when you're trying to figure this out is to stay curious and ask questions and not try to make judgments until after you're done learning. So I say that, you know, you really need to start big, big picture. What do you think about the issue? What do you think about the product? What do you think about the candidate? What do you think about the company? What it is, whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. Do you have any specific experience with the candidate, with anybody who supports the candidate, with the product, with the company, with whatever it is that you're trying to do? And then you'd really want to dig in how they learned about it, where they get their information about it, How does it impact your daily life? How can it make it more personal? What matters most to you? But you just keep having to, it's it's like you're looking at it as an onion. How do you get underneath all of these questions until you're actively listening? You don't want to skim the surface here. You want to get really, really deep. So for example, I was working on a project once related to diabetes and we were 
trying to understand why someone wouldn't take their medication because it just seems so like, why wouldn't you? It's, it's, it's so important. I mean, this is your health. Like, why wouldn't you take your medicine or take your injections or do what you need to do in order to manage your diabetes? And people don't. And what we learned, right, is that by having a conversation initially, so why wouldn't you keep, why wouldn't you take your medicine? Well, I'm busy. Or why didn't, I forgot my needles. Or why wouldn't, and you keep asking the questions and you get these surface level things, which you really couldn't do anything with. When you start asking more and more questions, getting underneath it, then you'll suddenly find out there's something underneath it. So one of the things that we found by asking more and more questions, trying to understand why, tell me about that moment that you forgot, or tell me why you forgot. Where were you when you realized that you forgot? I was at my granddaughter's birthday party and I forgot, and I'm sitting there and I'm looking at her birthday cake and I realize I can't have her cake because I don't have anything to manage my, my you know, blood sugar afterwards. Then we asked some other people, we're talking to them. It all came to these key moments. They weren't able to experience the moment that was most important to them because they weren't dealing with it in those moments. And so what we found out is empathetic insight. The under thing is like, if you take your medication, you will be able to do the things that are most important to you. So if you do this, you will also be able to have cake. If you do this, you'll also be able to enjoy your granddaughter's birthday. That became the empathetic insight, not just they were too busy to remember, right? It's just digging deeper and deeper and trying to uncover what's really going on with them. Right. So in a way, you know, they were too busy or they forgot, you know, kind of, I guess, points to a theme of it wasn't enough of a, an emotional priority for them. That's right. Until they missed out on something that uh, they regret. That's right. Okay. Well, Lee, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. <laughs> I just think that the, the, the key to all of this, right, is slowing down enough because I think so often in persuasion, what we're trying, what people try to do is write out the list of all the things that they want to convince somebody of. And I think the most important thing that you can do is take it and say, what is most important to the person I'm trying to persuade? So if you're going in to try and, and, and land the perfect job, what is most important to that employer? If you're going into your boss and you're trying to get you know, more money for a budget that's really important to an initiative you want next year, what's most important to them about that? If you're trying to get you know, resources to get a new hire, what's most important to the you know, executive committee about all of this? Because once you understand what's most important to them, then you can start crafting your message around what's most important to them and figuring out how to put the pieces together, but not the other way around. Because you're trying to persuade, you're the one that needs to be doing more of the work than the person you're trying to persuade. They just want, you want the insight to land on them, be like, huh, I never thought about that. The answer is yes, right? <laughs> if you're looking to hire some great people who can persuade with facts and empathy, check out our sponsor, ZipRecruiter. When Cafe Altura's COO, Dylan Miskowitz, needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, he had a heck of a time finding qualified applicants. So he switched over to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, but instead it proactively finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and then invites them to apply to your job. So that way you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones all the faster. And that is how Dylan, in fact, found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. 
See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at the web address ZipRecruiter.com slash HTBA. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash HTBA. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash HTBA as in how to be awesome. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Perfect. (laughs) Well, now could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? So I think my favorite quote right now comes from Proverbs and it's uh, Proverbs 18.2. It says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing personal opinion. And (laughs) there's so much wisdom in that. And it's such a timeless old, you know, (laughs) Proverbs is, is, there's there's so much in there, but I think it's so relevant for right now. It's relevant for persuasion, but I think it's relevant for society at large. And how would a favorite study or experiment or piece of research? You know, I, I really, really love Jonathan Haidt's Moral Foundations Theory. I find it helps me in so many different ways, whether I'm trying to navigate political conversations, whether I'm trying to help clients who are navigating corporate crisis. It's just trying to distill people's beliefs down to the simplest terms um, in a way that helps you understand them so that you can you can speak to them more effectively. To me, that's, that's uh, fascinating work. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? <laughs> PowerPoint. <laughs> Which I think is a really wildly unpopular thing, but I think it's a very powerful tool uh, because it forces you to be succinct and visual. And both of those things are really important to storytelling. And a favorite habit? My favorite habit, frankly, is reading. I, I love to read, whether it's the news or read books, or I start my day every day reading, and I think it's a really important habit. And is there a particular nugget you share that you're known for or is quoted back to you often? Well, what's interesting, my company tagline is, it's not what you say, it's what people hear. And that comes back to me all the time in good and bad ways. So even in my marriage, <laughs> sometimes when my husband and I are having a disagreement, he's like, you know, honey, it's not what you say, it's what people hear. And that could be hilarious. But it also comes back a lot of people, it just sticks with people. And it's so, so true. But it's not what you say that matters, it's what people hear. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Uh, you can reach me at leehartleycarter.com. Or if you want to reach my firm, we're at mislansky.com. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. You know, the thing that I, I think is most important in leadership and most important in doing a great job is having empathy. It's really trying to understand whether it's your customers, whether it's your colleagues, whether it's the people you're trying to manage, the people you're trying to lead. Spend time understanding them and what's most important to them and it'll pay dividends, whether it's in how you're communicating them, how you're managing them, how you're showing up. Lee, thank you. This has been fun. I wish you lots of luck at all your upcoming adventures. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I really appreciated Lee's take on active empathy, that it's okay to become fascinated, to be curious, to seem supportive and ask a lot of intrigued follow-up questions to really understand where someone's coming from, even if you think that perspective is totally wrong, damaging, destructive, evil, like you are not endorsing or approving or putting your, your stamp of imprimatur or approval on someone's ideas just if you give them the, the respect to, to listen well to what they hear. And uh, this kind of reminds me of some of, one of the favorite episodes, which was with our FBI hostage negotiation friend, Chris Voss, when he, he referenced understanding their religion if you will, in terms of like, what do they really believe and how do they fundamentally see the world? And, and look, these people have taken hostages, but the FBI agents know that by, by listening to them well and understanding where they're coming from, they're getting better outcomes. And they by no means clearly agree you know, with their, their approach or their position. So uh, good points from Lee. It's okay to get curious 
to really listen, ask follow-up questions, even become fascinated, intrigued, and and, and smile and nod and, and sort of get into that understanding without you providing an endorsement. So I think that goes a long way in terms of gaining understanding and help just making the world a more friendlier place if we all have some of that going on and making you more persuasive because you know where they're coming from. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to as we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F513. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. If you do, you'll catch our next guest. It's Alec Torelli. Alec is a professional poker player. He has some good perspectives on wise decision-making and keeping your cool. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 